Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Foley partner, Peter Lowe. Peter sits in the firm's Dallas office, where he's also vice chair of Foley's distribution and franchise practice group, as well as the hiring partner for Dallas. In this discussion, Peter reflects on growing up in Plano, Texas, attending undergrad at Georgetown University, and the University of Texas for law school. In our conversation, Peter and I cover a lot. I will not try to summarize all of it here in this intro, but I'll share with you that a few of the highlights of this discussion with Peter are that you learned that his path to law school was not exactly a straight line. You also will hear about how his family's experience immigrating to the U.S. from China very much influenced his decision to become a lawyer. I then get Peter to reflect on why he became a litigator, how he learned to litigate in those earlier days of his career, and also to discuss his distribution and franchise practice and what exactly it means for Foley to have a practice group dedicated to distribution and franchise. Towards the end of the discussion, we talk about Peter's role as hiring partner for Dallas. He explains exactly what that means, but also he shares his commitment to every new attorney that is hired into Dallas and the role that he wants to play in their career, which is very heartwarming to this director of diversity and inclusion's heart. Overall, it was an absolute joy to have Peter on the show. And I love that he ends the show with advice on the importance of understanding that time goes by faster than you think and why it's therefore important to take advantage of all opportunities. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Peter. Peter, welcome to the podcast. I'm thrilled to have you here today. Let's just jump right in and have you give your professional introduction. Thank you for having me. My name is Peter Lowe. I am a partner in the Dallas office of Foley and Lardner. I'm in the uh, dispute resolution and litigation section. I'm also the vice chair of the firm's national distribution and franchise practice group and the hiring partner for the Dallas office. This is fantastic. As I do with every episode, it's like, great. Thanks so much for telling me about all that. Now let's not talk about that yet. And let's talk about how you got to be able to say all of that today. So starting somewhat at the beginning, where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up in a suburb of Dallas, Texas called Plano, um, which was (laughs) at that time in the 1970s when my parents moved us there, uh, was a town of about 15,000 people. Now it's 275,000 people. Um, that was 40 years ago. Um, it's kind of a, a, one of the prototypical uh, or quintessential Sunbelt towns. What was that? You know, at that time was a big buzzword for cities in the South or Southwest that were rapidly growing with an influx of um, people from other parts of the country. And uh, Plano was one of those towns. And my parents were actually, you know, for other other parts of the country, they came from Wisconsin. Uh, my dad was a graduate student at SMU, and they decided to stay after he got his um, PhD, and uh, he went to work for Texas Instruments. 
All right. So if I found you in, say, middle school, what what sort of kid were you? How would you describe yourself? What, what were your interests? What were you into? <laughs> uh, I was uh, very good or, or very into, but not very good at sports. Uh, I was an aspiring um, eighth grade um basketball player uh, who couldn't make the B team despite all my efforts. Um, I was a pretty conscientious student um, and I kind of, you know, was fortunate enough to live kind of a, um, a pretty comfortable um, middle-class suburban uh, life uh, where that you know the biggest concerns were um, uh, you know when when and where the little league game was going to be or the next pickup basketball game was going to be I find it so funny when asking someone to sort of sum up the type of kid they were and I don't know 30 seconds a lot of the guests on the show there's two types so far it is I was super into sports and there's a handful of people who are so into sports that you know playing that, professionally in some way was actually on the table, but you know, life happened and they ended up becoming a lawyer. And then the other type is sort of like, I was bookish. <laughs> I, read, I read a lot of books. And I don't know if maybe that's just like the two big categories of of children, but I just, I find that so funny. It's like an informal survey that I'm taking. Um, so tell me what high school was like for you and that thought process going into college along with kind of, you know, where'd you go and how'd you decide where to go? Yeah, high school was interesting for me. Uh, I went to public schools uh, from kindergarten through eighth grade. And uh, my father is originally from Hong Kong. And um, his family uh, fled the Communist Party takeover of China in 1949. And they went to Hong Kong. I, I literally is, again, kind of in the current parlance as refugees. I, that's Literally, that's what they were. And they showed up in Hong Kong because it was a British colony at that point in time, and they were they were safe from what was going on in, in mainland China. And my grandparents were had little to no education, but they were savvy enough to realize that their children uh, needed to, to get more education than they did. And there was a uh, uh, high school, uh, or what we would consider a high school in, in the British system, it may be called something different, that was started by um, some Irish uh, Jesuit priests, uh, Roman Catholic priests in Hong Kong. And my uh, grandmother, uh, as she tells the story, uh, dressed my father up in the best clothes she could find and taught him how to shake hands and make eye contact and interview well. And he got into the Jesuit high school in Hong Kong. And my father went through that process and learned how to speak English and got kind of a Western style education and was very loyal to um, the Jesuits who were uh, world renowned educators. And so I'm it's a long way of saying I went to the Jesuit high school in Dallas uh, because my father was uh, very into Jesuit education. And so I uh, attended the Jesuit high school here for one year. And then my father, um, his job situation changed and we ended up relocating to Phoenix after uh, uh, my ninth grade year here. And I was lucky enough, there was a Jesuit high school in Phoenix called Brophy College Preparatory, and I finished high school there in Phoenix, Arizona, before going on to college. 
All right. I don't want to go on too much of an aside, but a couple things. The episode before yours is with a partner in our Tampa office, TJ Ferrante, who also went to a Jesuit high school and college. And we, I spoke for one moment about how I didn't know a lot about the philosophy of Je- Jesuit education until catching a few episodes of Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History, where he actually dove a lot into it. So that is very, very interesting. That's interesting. I need to check that out. Yeah, and I'll try to figure out what episode it is for you, Peter. Um, and then also, just to, take, to spend a moment on on your father's experience and you mentioning how he moved, and maybe along with your mother, from Wisconsin to Texas. How did he end up in Wisconsin? Now I'm just curious. Yeah, so after high school, you know, being a foreign student, there weren't there weren't a lot of options to for coming to the United States, but he was fortunate enough to, to get accepted to um, a small school in Washington State, which is no longer in existence called, I think it was called St. Martin's College. And he went there for one year and then transferred to University of Milwaukee or University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee or UWM, where he then joined a fraternity and one of his fraternity brothers was my mother's cousin. And he met my mother on a blind date uh, set up by my mom's cousin. And um, the rest is history. They got married there in Wisconsin, and then my they moved down to Texas so that he could finish his education at Southern Methodist University. That's really interesting. I, it's not every episode we get into some of the, like the family connections, but I just I think it's fun to learn to learn more about people and the sorts of moves that. Yeah, life is so random and you know exactly kind of arbitrary how things work, turn out. Absolutely. Okay, so um, ed- obviously education, particularly that Jesuit philosophy of education, was a priority. So, what was you attending college like? What was that process? Where'd you go? How did you decide on that school? In high school, I became very interested in. I guess politics and current events and and public policy and how decisions are made um, at 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 kind of a governing level. I didn't have much interest in business, um, and so I wanted to go to the East Coast in 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 particular Washington D.C. So I went to Georgetown University in Washington, uh, which is also a Jesuit school uh, by is. coincidence. It is. <laughs> and um, you know, I felt like there uh, you're kind of in the center of the and there's kids and literally people from all over the world there. And so I was, it was an interesting experience. I, um, I, uh, you know, was dated a girl from Japan. I was roommates from a, from a, with a kid from Costa Rica. I, um, met just all sorts of different people. And, um, it, it was a very, it was a very exciting exciting time because like I said it's kind of this um, very unique atmosphere of you you feel like you're in the middle of the action I can relate to that I went to um, college for undergrad in America at American University uh-huh. in DC uh, so I visited Georgetown's campus uh, a number of times but for me I'd traveled a bit you know not a lot but that was my first time really leaving home for me it was leaving Wisconsin um, and I so I can kind of relate to that experience of these people from all over the world are here <laughs> there's a, there's a whole world out there and then so what did you focus on um, for your undergrad major yeah I studied government which is like poli sci and with a with a kind of a bent towards international relations and a minor in history 
And um, I also, um, because I was interested in, you know, my my father's background of being from Hong Kong, I started taking um, Mandarin Chinese lessons or classes at Georgetown. I didn't grow up hearing it or speaking it in the home. And so I just kind of cold got into that. Uh, and that was fairly intense. So to say, that sounds daunting. That sounds <laughs> it took, a little bit daunting. It took a lot of time and effort and didn't yield oftentimes the greatest results, but it was a very interesting experience. Schoolwork up until then had been I had always kind of done fairly well. You know, if you study, you you know, I was used to kind of getting good results. And that was really the first introduction to not necessarily failure, but really having to study very hard and 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 just kind of make it. <laughs> first introduction to ma- some major challenge, exactly. some major academic challenge. Legitimate challenge, yes. And you know, when I see that someone was a political science major, so for everyone on the show, I'm always I'm usually following their LinkedIn bio as we as we talk. I assume they're pre-law. I just but from what you were saying, you haven't mentioned law school yet. So where does that thought process and there's actually some time in between college and law school. So perhaps that tells a story. But yeah, what happens after college? How does law school come come into the picture? Yeah, I I, I think um, looking back at it, it probably was junior year when I started to have to think over the horizon of what's going to happen after I graduate. And I, and, you know, I I remember a conversation I had with my father um, when I was in law school, or actually when I was in high school and he's, he, in, in, in his, in his mind, um, you know, in, in, in coming from the perspective, I think of a, of, a, of, of someone who immigrated to this country and who's focused on education, um, uh, which is not unlike a, a, a other other first generation immigrants. Um, you know, the, the the goal is to kind of become a member of what they of what they consider kind of the professional class, and so that's being a uh, a doctor or a, some kind of a credentialed scientist, engineer, univer- yeah, engineer, <laughs> yeah. university professor, something like that. And my dad was just very frank with me, and he said, "Well, you're not going to be a doctor. You're not going to be an engineer because you're not really any good at science or math. Um, and so, all the, the only option for you is to become a lawyer. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it bec- being a entrepreneur or, or, or some of the other myriad of things you can do with your life, well, all of which are worthy, um, just in, 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 he's very practical. And so I, I kind of took that advice and said, yeah, I'm, you know, I took calculus in college and I wasn't very good at it. And I didn't really have any interest in, um, taking organic chemistry or anything like, like I saw my friends taking who really wanted to go to medical school. And so I, I thought I was pretty good at reading and writing and, and arguing and uh, articulating uh, concepts. And so that kind of lends itself to, to going to law school. And so I started to really kind of think about, well, what is it going to take to get into law school? And you have to, you know, um, where, where are you going to go and what do you need to do? And so that I, I think I started, you know, really seriously strategizing about it uh, junior or senior year. But you didn't go right away. It looks like you graduated, worked for a little bit, 
and then you went? That's right. So uh, part of going to law school, as any lawyer would know, is taking the LSAT, um, standardized test. And I um, took it and um, didn't get the score that I wanted to get. My score was kind of mediocre. And uh, I really wanted to actually stay in Washington, D.C. and go to Georgetown. Um, I really liked my experience at uh, Georgetown undergrad. And so I just thought, well, I'll just stay here and 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 keep living in Washington, D.C. and just go to Georgetown. It's a pretty good law school. And so I took the LSAT and didn't do nearly what I needed to do to get into Georgetown. And so um, uh, at the in the fall of senior year, um, some recruiters came on campus and I said, well, if I can't go to law school right away, I can see about getting a job. And I then I kind of shifted my focus to perhaps moving back to Texas, which I considered home, even though I had graduated from high school in Arizona. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get a job with what was then called Nations Bank, but through a series of mergers is now Bank of America in a management trainee program in Dallas. And so I was able to relocate to Dallas. Uh, and my thought was, I'll let this not so great LSAT score burn off. Um, and then I'll take the LSAT again and um, see where I'm at. And so, um, you know, and, 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 you know, kind of going back to this thought about how random and arbitrary life can be, that was actually a good thing for me to, I think, um, get out of school, learn how to live on my own, pay my own bills, what it's like to earn a salary, advocate for yourself, get a raise, get promoted, not get promoted, not get the raise you want, uh, so forth and so on. And, um, kind of live, you know, like a, like a, like a real person, not as just a student. And uh, I learned a lot about, you know, working with, relating to other people in a professional environment. Uh, the management trainee program that I was put into um, it worked in rotation. So you were in one part of the bank uh, for a year to 18 months, and then you got put in another part of the bank and then another part of the bank until you finished and then were permanently placed somewhere. So my first rotation was in what's called the check processing department of the bank. And I always thought, like most people do, that the bank is, you know, nine to five and Monday through Friday. And you, what you see is what, what happens at the branch when you walk in and the, the nice big desks and the guys walking around in suits and, uh, you know, you know, bankers hours, quote unquote. But what come to find out, the real bank operates for the most part after hours because that's where all the, the, the transactions get processed and the books get balanced and uh, the, the, the real work um, takes place behind the scenes in uh, places that are not open to the public. And so I was in a, literally kind of a processing environment, like kind of like a factory floor with these gigantic machines that are literally uh, probably 20, 25 feet long and uh, six, seven, eight feet off the ground that are, that are processing these checks 
millions, hundreds of thousands, or sometimes millions of checks throughout the night so that they can get the debits can 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 get matched up with the credits and the $20 check that you write to me, the $20 gets taken out of your account and put into mine. And all that work and all that stuff happens, you know, from the hours of 5.01 p.m. to 7.59 a.m. the next day. This has never occurred to me, like how this works. You yeah. saying it, it's like, oh, it must work that way. But what you said about banker's hours, I think most of us are like, no, I'm pretty sure they stop working at 5.01. Yeah. And I don't it, know what it, you're talking it was, about. It was eye-opening. <laughs> And working at night is is a whole different experience because um, you know when you're at work, everybody else is at home and or sleeping or spending time with their family or whatever, and you're just in this kind of upside down world. You know, you've said it. I can already tell there were a lot of valuable things you learned and experienced during what you know looks like to have been about a four year period between undergrad and law school. And before we dive into law school, a couple of things I wanted to mention. So you were speaking before about that sort of first generation experience and the priorities, um, particularly from your dad, but probably from your family. And I just wanted to mention, um, there's another episode of the show, and it's with Galen Yu, who immigrated to the US from China when he was in middle school. And he had a, had a similar experience. I think his family was even more intricately involved, particularly in, in the decision for him to become an engineer. So I just raised that so that if listeners um, you don't want to hear more about that. Galen's certainly not the only Foley lawyer we've had on the show to talk about that, but I think his experience in many ways mirrors yours. And then also, as you've been telling this whole thing about deciding to delay attending law school, I also, I love when people on the show talk about any sort of setback. Um, I say this constantly, but I'll say it again. I have multiple purposes for this. Some of it is Foley lawyers, getting to know Foley lawyers, but we also have law students listening. We're getting people even considering law school listening. And I just think it's so important and powerful, you know, for someone like yourself, Peter, who on paper, you're a senior partner at a law firm to, to hear that, you know, not everything's a straight line. And when you do have those um, kind of, you know, divergences or sidetrack, it can be really useful. And then so just another episode to plug uh, with a senior corporate partner at Foley, Clyde Tennant, who also had a little bit of a securitous route to law school, um, but who, you know, you look on paper, you would never guess that that's what happened. So Clyde Tennant out of the Milwaukee office, he's episode 54. So I wanted to share that with <laughs> listeners too. You're like um, the Google he, of the episodes. Oh, you can I, yeah, I'm like, off. if I'm going to raise it, I, I did pull up, if I'm going to raise it, I might as well tell him the episode, but he's somebody who, you know, on paper, he went to Columbia, um, and then started like a preeminent New York law firm, but it, it took some time to get there. And I just think those stories are really powerful, but so let's spend a little bit of time talking about, so you, you know, you work, you, you work for four years at the bank, you get a ton of life experience, work experience. You then finally decide to, to apply to law school. Um, where did you go and what was the law school experience like for you? Well, I went to University of Texas Law School, so I was back in Texas, and um, you know, I was I, I, uh, University of Texas has a great law school, and it, it being the public or a public school in Texas, I also got a discount being a Texas resident, and so um, I got in there. I got to stay in Texas. I got to live in Austin, uh, which is a very desirable place in in Texas. I think it's all due respect to Dallas, and I love living in Dallas, but Austin, I think, is probably the nicest city in Texas, um, especially as a student. 
By the way, everyone's moving there now. Yes. I know of at least five people who have moved yes. there in the last 18 months. Yeah, it's it's very nice. Um, and so I was, you know, I got to go down there and it was just a it's a new, it was a new experience. It was um going to Georgetown, a big city on the East Coast, but kind of a, a relatively smaller school, six thousand undergrads, you know, one campus, you feel like you're just kind of in this little fishbowl in this area of a, of a much larger city. Uh, University of Texas, kind of the opposite, a smaller city, but a gigantic school, 50,000 people. Uh, and the law school is one of the biggest law schools in the country. And so that was a, you know, just a, a, a again, a very different experience, but um, a very valuable one. And uh, the school for Again, if you're just looking at it in kind of economic terms, um, that the amount of debt that I left with was a fraction of what I would have incurred had I gone to Georgetown or some other private school. Uh, and but I've got a very very good education, uh, and again met some very very interesting people from all different top walks of life, um, and 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 was set up very very well to start a legal career. And I won't spend too much time on law school because we still have some, we have some ground to cover because you've been practicing for, you know, the better part of two decades at this point. But the last question about law school or reflection I'd be interested to to hear you talk about is, it, to the extent you recall the academic adjustment, once again, I think there's also power for law students hearing a partner say, law school was hard or it wasn't, or just how did that feel to you, that, that learning environment? Yeah, law school was very hard. <laughs> um, it was different. It, you know, being away for four years and and getting back into kind of the routine of being a student, and legal education is different from undergrad in the in the sense of undergrad is, uh, you know, I think still kind of a continuation of I'm going to tell you what you need to know, and then the exam is largely going to be you kind of regurgitating it back to me in your own words. Legal education is a lot different. It's I'm going to kind of tell you some stuff, but it's really up to you to do most of the heavy lifting and 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 come up with some answer or some response uh, to this to this problem that is could be far, far afield from what you talked about or what you read about. Uh, in class or in the in the books, um, and it's a, just a completely different kind of intellectual exercise, um, and so you you have to be. It's just a different. I don't I don't want to demean it, but it's a different game, and you have to figure out the rules of the game are are different from what they were well, in undergrad. It's, it's disorienting. I it think, is for um, people who are used to you know. I just like like you said, but parroting back information, and not to say law school isn't without its need to just memorize certain things, but that analysis and like you're learning principles and show me how you would apply them and how right. you can deal with ambiguity right. is I think really hard a hard adjustment for most people. Yes, living in this uh, area of the gray, and I remember in my first year a criminology class or a crim law class, the 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 one of my students says I I don't understand what the re who this reasonable man is, <laughs> or, the, or what this test of the re what what does that mean? I, I just don't understand. The professor said, "I don't either," but it's 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 our job to kind of sort through it and figure it out. Um, and you name it, you may never get to the you may never 
figure it out. Um, people have been wrestling with these things for centuries. I love that. That's a really funny question. Who who is this reasonable man? We're all like, thank you for asking. I was wondering. <laughs> I'd like to meet him, you know, and ask him to tell me the answers. But oh my you know. gosh, that's that's so funny. So did you know? And we'll start, you know, segueing into the, your your practice and time practicing. But did you know litigation was what you wanted to do? How did how did you figure that out, or how did you become a litigator? Yeah, I, I just enjoyed talking. I was a fairly comfortable public speaking with public speaking, and um, enjoyed the kind of back and forth um, arguing and switching sides, and that was very stimulating for me. Um, the, the, the transactional courses, the property or contracts or whatever, although I think very valuable, just didn't get my juices flowing. I, I've made it clear on the show that I'm, I'm wired similarly. So whenever I have litigators on, I'm like, I understand what you do since in a former life, I used to litigate the, the corporate folks. I'm, I'm very kind and respectful, but I'm usually like, what is that exactly? Why, do, why did you do that for the client? Because <laughs> my brain just is not wired that way for whatever reason. Um, but I can see, you know, just from your path that you spent the first four years of your career at one firm, you then joined Gardier. Um, and of course, now Foley. And for listeners who aren't aware, um, Foley and Lardner merged with Gardier at this point, I think about three and a half years ago or so. Um, so what I'd like to do is, you know, we're not going to go through your career year by year, but I would love if you would just give some quick reflections on life as a more junior lawyer, you know, what what that was like adjusting. And then I want to segue a bit into the nuts and bolts of your practice today. Yeah, I, you know, started out with, a, a, like you said, a Dallas firm. Texas-based firm, regional firm in Dallas, very well-respected firm there, and you know had a had a good experience. Um, worked on some very interesting cases, but was getting to the point where I was, you know, felt like I personally wasn't in an environment where I could thrive or do the things that I wanted to do. And as you understand just as well as anybody, Alexis, the legal market is um, and the industry is very fluid. Uh, it wasn't all that always that way. You know, a long time ago, people would join a firm and that's where you stay and you kind of make partner and retire. And that's the only firm you'll ever work for. But now, especially in a market like Dallas, which is fairly sophisticated, people are moving around. And I had an opportunity to go to Gardier as a, as a fourth year associate. And, um, you know, made the right decision. Um, as a hiring partner, I, I, I tell law students, I said, it's, these are hard decisions to make because you're um, making decisions based upon incomplete information. And I made that decision to move kind of based upon incomplete information. I didn't, I didn't you, know, you know, never fully know what you're getting into, but it was the right decision. It was the best decision I could have made because it offered me the environment um, uh, and the setup to to work on cases and with people who were, you know, just I just gelled with and fit with yes. and well, and and really I think at that that level of one's career development professional development has to be your north star. So don't get us wrong; we will fully 
brag about Foley and Lardner why a lot of other things also matter. But but so that 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 makes sense to me. And just to be clear, we're going to talk to you for a little bit about, or I, I don't know why I said we, I'm going to talk to you for a bit about your practice, but I do want to talk to you with your hiring partner hat on as well before before this our, our discussion is over. Sure. Um, so you join Gardier. And of course, when I read your bio, you know, I see your vice chair of the distribution and fr- franchise practice, um, as well as you do just a lot of what sounds like general complex commercial litigation. I would love if you could talk a little bit about the, the ins and outs of your current practice. And then maybe we'll talk a bit about, you know, life as a litigator and how one learns to litigate. Yeah. So, you know, w- when I joined Gardier, I got put on a a uh, 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 litigation team is what we would call them back then, and really learned how to, in my mind, litigate commercial cases. And so I I was fortunate enough to to work with some very talented people who kind of taught me um, how to approach these cases, how to think about them, how to strategize, how to how to do you know do all the tactics that are necessary. And so you know, I, I was able to kind of develop a, a practice um, that, that where we can handle, you know, pretty much any case that comes through the door with few exceptions. Um, but, um, you know, uh, you know, I learned how to be a, what I think is to be a problem solver, you know, take a problem, un, un, unwind it, unwrap it, look at, at it from all sorts of different angles and present practical solutions to 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 the to the for what's best for the person's business because people in our world are coming to us with these are business issues we don't do personal injury generally or criminal law or things like that family law these are business issues and so i always i learned how to approach things that this is a business problem that's been transferred over into the court system or the legal process but at at its heart there's a there's a business solution and so i think that's the way we or i've learned how to operate is to try to get into the mind of or stand in the shoes of the business person who's bringing us the issue and to solve that's that so problem important. from that context well, you just said is so important. And I think to someone who's not familiar with the you know clientele of, of large law firms, which are typically, you know, that Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 uh, corporation, what you said may not have really computed. But it's interesting because just as a legal industry, particularly as a big firm, you know, the average person thinks of a lawyer and they're like, you know, can you help me with my speeding ticket? <laughs> you know, like, you know, I got hurt on the job. And I think there's a lot of law students actually who have to close the gap on understanding what is it these big firms even do? What are the expectations? What are the clients like? And I just, so I, I'll stop, I'll stop repeating what you just said, but I just think it's really important to make, make that clear. Um, and then in terms of your day-to-day practice, is a lot of it focused on that the franchise side? Do you still do quite a bit of general commercial or what's the, what's the split look like for you these yeah, days? Yeah. So, you know, a, a, a lawyer I worked with a long time ago at my first firm says, you can't choose your clients. They kind of choose you. And so the, the distribution and franchise piece of it came into um, the picture about 10 years ago or so, just because of a, of a, of a personal relationship that I had with a current client who is uh, was general counsel for a national franchiser. So based upon that 
need um, that we had to fulfill. Uh, that's how I kind of gr- got involved in that area of the law. And when F- Gardier merged with Foley, as you said, three and a half years ago in April of 2018, Foley you know, one of the great things about Foley is they have all these very sophisticated, well-built out uh, practice groups. And one of them was the distribution and franchise group. So I personally plugged in very well uh, with that group and was, you know, honored to be asked to to help run the practice group. And uh, it's been a great experience because the lawyers who are associated with it are tremendous and I've learned a lot from them. But to answer your question, only about at any given time, you know, 30 to 40% of my docket is that type of work. The rest of it is probably just general commercial litigation um, issues of just a, you know, a variety of matters, you know, breaches of fiduciary duty, breaches of contract, things like that in, in all sorts of different industries that are not, not necessarily franchise focused. Well, and because you are the first member, so I've had I've had litigators on the show before, but you're the first member of the distribution and franchise group, you know, let alone you know, vice chair or leadership of the group that I've had on. Could you speak a little bit about about that practice group? Because I'm just envisioning some listeners who are like, I know those words, but what does that what does that mean? What does it mean to have a practice group dedicated? Yeah. So, what you mean by both concepts, distribution and franchise? It's you you are or someone is selling something that came from somewhere else, okay? They're kind of first cousins of one another. So think of a franchise, think of McDonald's as the kind of quintessential franchise. That person who owns that McDonald's is paid for the right to operate a McDonald's restaurant and use the Golden Arches thing out front and the um, the look and the feel of the restaurant, the, the 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 color scheme, the decor, obviously the menu, how the food is prepared. They paid for the right to operate a franchise, which is to plug into that brand that is owned by someone else. Distribution is kind of kind of the same thing as uh, a lot of. Um, like dealership arrangements. So I am uh, an automobile dealer and I'm paying for the right to sell Toyotas or Fords or Hondas, or I'm a um, uh, farm manufacturing equipment dealer and I'm paying for the right to sell Kubota or John Deere or whoever. Um, and, And so those legal relationships that give people the right to associate with a brand or sell a a, a particularly uh, branded product is what we kind of specialize in. Um, and so we have a very good, you know, very, like I said, well-developed, deep, deep bench of people who have experience in all these different facets of that area of the law. Yep, absolutely. And helping with, you know, client needs as they relate to those two right. things. I don't and I don't know that I want to dig too far into this, but I, I just think it's interesting for for the listeners who, you know, don't work at Foley and Lardner and don't know this. But as a firm, we're structured, we have legal departments. So we have kind of like three large legal departments that everything fits under one of those three. And then within a legal department, we'll have practice groups, you know, which generally are, you know, attorneys who focus on the same, you know, type of 
whatever legal work. Um, but also even within that or beyond that, we have industry teams. And so I, I raise this only to say that I think it's really important just within you know what we do, what we offer to clients, that that level of expertise and insight, not just in what the subject matter may be, but even you know down down to the industry itself. And that's certainly something when I was in law school, it would have never occurred to me to think about how that works. Yeah. The, the subject matter expertise is something that Foley really does well. It never ceases to amaze me. And these all firm emails go out. Is there an, do we have someone who knows about blah, blah, blah. And there's always somebody who raises their hand in the most esoteric niche issue. (laughs) Yeah. I, I get those emails, even though obviously I could never really be of service to somebody in that way. And I, like you said, it'll be literally like 30 seconds later. They're like, never mind. I found four people. Yeah. I got found. Thanks everybody. Yeah. That's right. Well, we're gonna switch. We're gonna switch gears a little bit. I have a little bit of guilt because I'm actually sure if we had a ton of time together, I could mine you for all kinds of insights related to to practice. But as you mentioned, you are the hiring partner for Dallas. So first, I want to talk a little bit about like what does that what does that mean? What is your job as the hiring partner? Well, I'm the chair of a committee that's appointed by the firm of lawyers in our office. They could be associates or senior counsel or or partners who uh, vet and participate in the interview process of uh, recruiting and selecting and bringing in law students for uh, what we call a clerkship or internship typically in their second year of law school in, the, in their t- what we call 2L summer, so the summer after their second year. Sometimes we have um, students who are coming in after their first year, but most of the students are um, coming in after their second year. And then we help to manage that program of um, supervising, uh, evaluating the work that is performed by the clerks while they're here for the 10 weeks in the summer, and then m- ultimately making the offers for permanent uh, employment with the firm. And I know for the past, let's say maybe month or so, you know, you and other members of the uh, recruiting committee, whether it be in Dallas or across the room, have been busy because so uh, we're recording this right now. What is, I think, the, starting to be closer to the end of interview season to fill those those entry level or those summer associate opportunities. Um, and this year has been very strange because we've had to recruit twice in one year due to everything being being delayed. So I just want to acknowledge you and all the work that I know you've been doing the past few weeks Thank you. Um, for that. But also, I mean, I would say in many ways that also makes you sort of, you know, an, an ambassador um, for the Dallas office in terms of trying to find, you know, folks that want to join Foley and Lardner. Um, and so I have a couple of things I want to ask you about that. But once just just in general, and I actually have not had a chance to visit Dallas, um, you know, largely due, I think, you know, to the pandemic. But what would what would you want someone to know, particularly that law student, about about the Dallas office? Well, I answer it in two ways. The Dallas office in particular, uh, as we've talked about, was the main office for the old Gardier firm. And so I think we occupy a unique place in the Dallas market in the sense that we are a part of a national firm, but we are also a full service office in Dallas, which uh, there's lots of national firms in Dallas, but not all of them can offer a, f- a full service office in Dallas. And what I mean by that is we have all the practice groups represented here, and, and then some. We have litigation, we have transactional corporate 
business law um, and we have IP and we have real estate and we have a wills and estates department. So, so we can pretty much cover most client needs from Dallas. I mean, we have a, a that much infrastructure and manpower, if you will, uh, which is, again, for a, da- for a national firm, I think that that's fairly unique. Um, so if you were to come here, you are not uh, going to be working in some, again, not to disparage, but not, you know, in some 10-person startup office, you know, where most of your work or a lot of your interactions are going to be with people in other offices or in the, you know, main office, whether it be in New York or San Francisco or wherever. Um, and so that, that's what's unique about our office. Secondarily, but just as important, you are also part of Foley, uh, which is a great firm. And Foley devotes a tremendous amount of resources to making the firm feel like kind of like what I would call a big, small town in the sense that we get to know everybody. They, they devote a lot of time and energy to flying people around, having meetings, having training sessions, having social events, where everybody from the partners all the way down to the most junior associates get to interact and, 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 and network with one another. So you don't feel like you're on this island uh, and that there aren't, they, they, the, the firm tries to mitigate as much as possible uh, the geographic boundaries that may exist. And so Absolutely. you feel like you're a big part of this big organization, but that doesn't seem so big because you get mm-hmm. to meet a lot of people. I think that's right. Actually, I had a meeting, I guess it was a week or two ago with Michael Newman, who's the um, office managing partner of Dallas. And he showed me a, a presentation he was going to give to leadership about just, you know, goings on. And, you know, I think it would come as no surprise to most people that in light of living through what we've been living through, there's been a lot of focus, I think, on maintaining culture, even though folks are remote. But he was just showing me some really neat things that the Dallas office had done and things where I was like, I wish I could have known about that or been on that. So th- I think there's there's definitely just a lot of ac- activity and community within the office. Um, and I, I wanted to mention also, as I'm plugging former podcasts that I've recorded, uh, a few episodes back, I got uh, a one of the summer associates who just finished her time in the Dallas office, Yesenia, Yesenia Soria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's great. So that's episode 60. So I'll just, I'll mention that as well. Cause I do think this will be out in time for if there's a few people perhaps questioning and wanting to hear from you who will listen as they decide whether or not, you know, hopefully to accept our, our offer. So I just had to, had to mention that. But um, I think overall Foley really does have this holistic approach um, to recruiting, you know, that you bring that other members of the recruiting committee 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 bring. And so I think it's just nice for people to hear directly from you, the hiring partner in Dallas, you know, what it's like, what what they could expect. And I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to add about that before we start to wind down. But yeah, the holistic approach, uh, again, is very important. We don't have big summer classes here for a reason, because we care about it. We're going to invest in every student that comes in. And we assume that the that we're going to give you an offer and that you're going to accept and that you're going to come work here. Uh, I think for you know four or five summers in a row, we've had a hundred percent offer rate, hundred percent acceptance rate, um, and that's very important because we're not just moving bodies through for the sake of moving bodies through. We're interested in that particular person for how they fit in to our team. 
and we're going to devote every resource we can to making that person successful. And the only way you can do that is by having the 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 uh, class sizes that we do. If we were hiring 25 students every year, 50 students or whatever, there's no way we could do that. And so in the clerkship process, I try to review, not always, but I try to review every piece of work product that every clerk does, not, not just the ones that I assign, but everyone, because I want to see how every clerk is doing, because I want to participate meaningfully in the evaluations, tell them what they're doing well, tell them what they can improve upon. Because again, the assumption is, is that we're going to give that person an offer, they're going to accept. And so I want the coaching and the mentoring to start right away before they're even here. And so that's very important. You've said so many important things. I, I'll reflect on that before I ask you some of my final questions. One, earlier you mentioned how, you know, generally not a legal career. It's not about people don't find the one for, firm and, and stay there for their entire career. And it's funny because we we know that to be true, but our model at Foley is you absolutely can do that here. That's you know, right. We we bring people in with the with the you know, hope and you know expectation that you will spend your entire career here. And if partners, what you want to do, like here is your path. We're not a highly leveraged firm where you know you know ninety percent you need to leave before partners even on the horizon. So I think that's important to know. And you know, for anyone listening, like our numbers bear that out. You can pull our stats and see that our associate to partner ratio is about one to one. Exactly. But what you mentioned about also keeping tabs and reviewing summer associate work product, um, one, I had no idea you were going to say that. That's amazing. So definitely, so kudos to you and your involvement because that's no small feat. But also, it speaks to this other really important concept that you know we mentioned earlier. As a junior attorney, professional development is your north star. It's who's going to teach you how to be a lawyer. The other stuff matters, but that's core. Who's going to train you? And so I will often have students ask me, like, how do I pick firms? You know, and you were also talking earlier about imperfect information. Also for me as director of DNI, how do I know if a firm values diversity and inclusion? And I have to, I get, I mean, it can sound pessimistic, but here's the honest thing I tell them is a lot of our websites look the same in that way. Everybody will say they're very committed to DNI, but what I want you to focus on is something different, which is how will they develop you as an attorney and what are their feedback me- feedback mechanisms? Because um, it just happens to be that, you know, sometimes when there are issues, it might be that diverse lawyers, for whatever reason, aren't getting as good of feedback. So what you want to know is, will this place be committed to me? And so I think what you just said you know, isn't a testament to the to that commitment that we, you know, try our best to give to everyone who walks through the doors or opens a laptop from home. Um, that's right. As an, as an attorney at Foley and Lardner, I just think that's tremendous. That's right. I mean, if 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 a if a student comes here and then leaves after two, year two, year three, year four, whatever, I personally and I know my colleagues here do, and I think this is felt across the firm. We would consider that a failure if it unless it was for some other you know, extenuating reason that the person, you know, that was just by life choice or whatever. But we, you're exactly right, Alexis. We we want to do everything we can and po- possible to, to set up that person for success. That doesn't always happen, but we're committed. We want right, to make that really commitment. Them. Well, the thing is, as a law student or junior lawyer, hearing that the hiring partner, you know, slash, you know, vice chair of a practice group is going to review your stuff sort of makes you want to crawl under a rock a little bit. It's a little (laughs) bit daunting. But what I, but what I'm saying is it's actually a really good thing. And it's very indicative to the commitment of the commitment to, to training and development. And that needs to be what you focus on as a law student. Um, But as we do wind down, I want to ask you one of my final questions, which is overall, 
your advice, either maybe it's to that law student or to somebody early in their their legal career on just navigating your career? There's so much I could say to that, but I think the the one thing that really jumps out at to me is your most valuable commodity, other than yourself and your mind and who you are, is time. And time goes by so fast. Everybody says it, and I kind of would roll my eyes, and I thought I'd be 27 forever or 31 forever, and here I am, not 27, not 31, uh, a long way from that. And so just take advantage of every opportunity that comes to you, whether professionally, stretch, stretch yourself, push yourself, challenge yourself. Don't be afraid to try new things. And personally, whether it's, you know, in through a service organization or a nonprofit, or that's one of the things I regret. I didn't kind of understand all that until, again, it only very recently in the past 10 years or so. And I, I could have started that so much earlier. Um, and I've gotten so much reward personally out of giving back and and participating in the community and helping in a very, you know, sometimes not terribly significant way, but doing my best to try to um, help others who, who, who are in need. And I could have I could have done all that and gotten involved in that all that so much earlier. And I just didn't, I didn't think about it. I wasn't aware of it. Um, but just, just embrace life. You're, you're, you're only going to do it once and make the most out of it. Absolutely. That's some great advice. And earlier is usually when you have more time because life only gets more complicated. Exactly. Uh, but with that, Peter, I will thank you so much for being on the show. And then my final, final question is if a listener wants to find you on Foley's website, send you an email with you know questions or comments, can they feel free to do that? Absolutely. P- email me at ploh at foley.com uh, or give me a call. Uh, I'm on the website and uh, I'd love to hear from you. Perfect. Thank you so much, Peter. Alexis, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review, as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley & Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.